Welcome to Say What? A Fresh Look at Old Sayings, the podcast which explores the origins, meaning, and value of old sayings, familiar expressions, and adages. I'm Dave Ellingson, adventurer, author, educator, and seeker of wisdom. Today's episode is part of our series of conversations entitled Life Journeys, and my guest is Dr. Jeff Mallinson, professor and chair of the History and Political Thought Department at Concordia University, Irvine, California. Uh, friend and former colleague, in fact, Jeff, um, when I think about it, you were the dean at Trinity Lutheran College, and you were my boss. In a weird way, yeah. I mean, <laughs> ac- academics is a different kind of thing. It's uh, more the person who has to, you know, kind of uh, get close to uh, some of the fray that's not otherwise enjoyable by faculty. <laughs> well, we, we had a good time working together, and I look forward to this, uh, this conversation. Um, I know you've had an interesting life journey. Uh, give us a few uh, quick uh, maybe stories or examples along the way, some of the twists and turns and detours on your life journey, Jeff. Well, it's been kind of weird. I mean, one way to conceive it is me always in this weird kind of uh, like fox going through the, the, uh, the farm kind of experience with, with religion. So when, when I was in the uh, sixth grade, my parents uh, moved, we moved out from, uh, uh, from Colorado. My parents had been hippies, but they found a way to uh, make a whole bunch of money selling a house that they had built near Boulder. Now Boulder had ex- expanded, it sprawled. So this little house, you know, uh, was getting too close to all the squares. But when they sold the house to the squares, they made hundreds of thousands of dollars. And they said, wait a minute, capitalism is great. Uh, <laughs> let's go to Orange County. So we kind of, you know, moved out to Orange County, California. And um, wh- whereas we had thought that in some ways, California was going to be the groovy uh, kids. Mm-hmm. We moved into a, like a suburban area south of LA that was not the groovy kids. It was, I mean, you know, it, you can define it how you want, but it was, it was really kind of this moment where there was a, um, a kind of consolidation of the Jesus freaks who had kind of been, you know, evangelical hippies, but uh, they kind of were growing up when I was a, you know, a kid, they were starting to get real jobs and uh, they would cut their hair and start wearing, you know, um, golf shirts and, instead of whatever, you know, they got from India before. And so, um, it, it had kind of become this homogenous thing, but it was so foreign uh, to my, my childhood experience. And it was so uh, tormenting and traumatizing, just a specific experience that I had that, uh, to not tell the whole story, but I, I ran away from school and they, and they would beat you with a, um, with a cricket bat. And when I ran away from school in sixth grade, I said, you know what I really should do with my life? Because uh, they would always put me in detention. I had to read the Bible. I'd say like, man, this Jesus guy, if you think of him as a more of a, a kind of liberating guru, man, this guy's worth, uh, worth studying and he might hold the keys to me helping my friends who were struggling with what I, I would argue very toxic forms of religion. Um, that Jesus could actually help them from some of the ways that they're mentally enslaved to the system. So in one sense, I mean, I look back on my life in a way that, that has been um, I'm, I'm, I'm 
learning not to be angry at myself, to have compassion on myself. But for this kid in sixth grade who said, I'm going to become a scholar, I'm going to come up, become a professor so I can fight against uh, these people who are thinking that they're controlling the narrative of uh, truth in fundamentalism. But every time I would, you know, I get into it over times, uh, uh, over my life and career, I always find myself kind of getting tricked back into something that feels like a cult again. And um, so that, that takes me then to, you know, to recently on a, a couple sabbaticals, I had two semesters that were spaced out. And I kind of wanted to do something like you did. You, you paddled, uh, you know, with your kayak, which I liked that I had a wife and a little dog with me. So we, we, we did one semester in a van, a, a small four-wheel drive Japanese import called Adelica, traveled the country, more up in the Northwest. And then we traded that out for a truck camper so we could have a little more space in a bathroom. And we went all the way through America and through the South. And what I was looking to do was try to continue this answer uh, or trying to find the answer to the question, how is it that we can uh, have a spirituality that liberates um, rather than uh, kind of keeps us in, in, in these chains? Um, and it was an uncomfortable journey. That's why I'm really excited to talk to you about it because I know you like this kind of thing, but it was an uncomfortable and really delightful journey. It was uncomfortable uh, because I think, you know, by traveling, one of the things we found is there's ecological degradation that, that you really can't understand until you see it and smell it. Um, there's, there's bigotry and hatred in places that you might not have expected it. There's joyful, uh, hopeful conversations in other places. Like I had wonderful experiences in, in Nashville with really, with really cool people and poets and, and so forth. Um, but but all of it was kind of a journey to see if you can unplug. And one of the things I learned was it's really, really hard to escape whatever the system is. It could be a political, economic, uh, religious, uh, academic system. Freedom is very elusive in the land of the free. Well, and here we are plugged in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Using mm -hmm. oh, yeah. technology to try to understand unplugging. Can, can you really unplug? Um, or, or what have you learned on your journey about in what ways can you unplug and, and how does that work? Well, I'll tell you a sad one first and then we'll try to end happy. But one of the places I went uh, and stayed for a while was a uh, famous uh, commune. It was kind of built on like um, Mahayana Buddhism mixed with a little Sikhism and a whole lot of acts, the book of acts in, in the concept of community. And it was uh, this guy, uh, Gaskin, and his wife, Ida May, who was more famous actually than he is. Uh, she's famous for the live birth uh, doula movement. And they took a whole bunch of buses of hippies and they were looking, they were kind of like nomads looking for somewhere to, to, to start their commune. They ended up in a little town right outside of, uh, of Nashville, about an hour or so out of Nashville, stayed with them to try to learn from all of the old timers, the people who had actually come to that place it's called the farm and there's documentaries and books about it a really interesting place but i got to kind of live with that history and even explored whether it might be possible to move to it but the the reason i bring it up is it was this really sad tale of 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 meeting with all of these idealistic you know um retired people now who had to reflect on the fact that their kind of christian um 
anarchist socialist um, experience didn't work. And it was like one of the, it was the saddest thing. Now I've been living in the system. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing the commune thing, but I had kind of found that I was disappointed in these people for giving up on it. Like they were supposed to be true to the cause and, and I, I could go out and play. And what they found was they had, they had taken in so many like single mothers and, and people that had come from abusive homes. And so they had this community of over 1500 people, but they didn't have any economic, um, well, they weren't bringing funds in. And so in the eighties, they had to kind of disband it as a commune and it just became an intentional community. And they had to live with kind of that odd relationship with the system. They just couldn't escape it. So they, the only people that could stay on the farm were people who could create entrepreneurial endeavors or they'd work construction uh, locally. And everybody else has kind of had to get kicked to the curb. And so what it kind of led me to, to think is that there may have been a time when that kind of thinking might have worked all around the world, but because of the the way that the the global economy exists, the way that you, you know, you've got to be, you know, paying into the system to get some of the like the healthcare and all that, that I realized that as much as that it's a helpful experiment, um, it's also kind of like trying to pretend like we're all elves, you know, like you know, often Rivendell or something, and not taking account of a, a, a problem they recognized. And that is that they're all pretty white and came from affluent homes. And so it was people that had great privilege that maybe had come from New York uh, and left, rightly left, what they saw as, as dangerous and, and sinful elements of uh, what their parents' values might have been. But they didn't have a lot of, they didn't have a lot of people of color in it. And so one of the things they were reflecting on is this idea of saying, hey, let's all get together, let's, let's get out of the system, sometimes can be a very privileged kind of question. And, and, and that's what I noticed with a lot of people when I was traveling, you kind of go in this um, kind of nomadic, almost, uh, you know, like the Romani people kind of, uh, the pejoratively called the gypsies, but you kind of have this gypsy kind of style with, with young people in van life, old people who are retired, people that are really instant friends. But one of the things there, again, that I noticed is that, uh, you know, and this is topical today, that it's one thing for a 25-year-old blonde gal to be living in her van outside of, uh, you know, uh, like where she wants to work, perhaps in, in, in a metropolitan area or even in the mountains, uh, but much more difficult, again, for people of color. And so the, the, the fear that you might experience being camped out in the middle of nowhere by yourself is would just be kind of amplified depending on the hostility of that town. And so like in our case, when we drive, when we drove around in our little hippie van, um, it was much more uncomfortable in certain parts of the country right. than when I'm driving around in a Ford F50, when I'm getting like, you know, high fives from folks, you know? <laughs> and, and so the, I guess what I'm, I'm saying there, what I, what I discovered on that journey is that uh, that it's it's of course di difficult to to find a, a, the kind of freedom I was this intangible freedom I was looking for, but also extraordinarily diff difficult if um, you face hostility as you're trying to to travel around. And, and part of the whole van life community thing is it's kind of a gray area in a lot of municipalities in terms of you know um, are you allowed to camp in your car? You know uh, the the um, the criminalization of homelessness 
uh, is something we don't think about until you've got, you know, affluent kids in a $70,000 van getting kicked out by the police, you know? Right. Well, it's, it's an interesting time right now, obviously with the pandemic and with protests and, and all that's going on here in Seattle, I'm sure you've been following um, this uh, liberated zone, this little uh, police free zone that's been created yeah. on Capitol Hill called CHOP. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a group of idealistic, well-meaning, um, wonderful people who, who want to see a change in our society. And, um, our, you know, in the last two or three days, uh, they are encountering kind of the reality of, and how do you manage yourself? How do you govern yourself? There have been a couple of shootings. Um, I know in, in Washington, D.C., literally right outside the White House, another one of these autonomous zones has been created. And um, I, I'm interested in your comments on that, uh, going back to Jesus and his ideal and his image of, in a sense, I guess, the good life uh, that attracted you and, mm -hmm. and I think stays with you. Um, and, and people who've tried to make that life or, or religious life more real, reflect a little bit on what you're seeing today in terms of whether it's Seattle or the protest movements, how, how do we, how do we transform society? What, what does that look like? What have you learned on your journey? I always try to, I always try to get less theological and I always end up getting more theological. It's a, it's a strange trap. <laughs> Um, I mean, the first thing is, you know, uh, so my, so one of the things my wife and I were doing as we were traveling is we were trying to, we were trying to translate uh, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching. Now, there's a thousand translations of it, but uh, we wanted to translate it for a couple purposes. One for a class I wanted to do in comparative um, politics, Eastern and Western, but also um, in some of the work we've been doing with folks who have, who have experienced um, kind of the, the, disappointment with American evangelicalism as it's related to political crises of our times. And so part of what I was doing is look, I'm looking at the history of this and trying to figure out, you know, what, what can we unpack about how this happened? You know, so I'd go back as far as Constantine and Charlemagne, but really um, the, the reason we were, we were, tr we were translating the Tao Te Ching, which kind of fits very nicely. Uh, you may have heard that line, the, um, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Uh, our version is something like, um, you know, a, a thousand mile trek begins with the first step. Um, but it's, we realize it's a really good text to be translating as we, uh, as we were traveling. We were trying to learn how to surf the Tao uh, and then translating what Lao Tzu was saying. And I think that was helpful. But we've kind of, we kind of came to this conclusion that it was like Lao Tzu for our sanity Jesus for the world. And, and so we were, I was kind of, you know, since I was shifting over into uh, just the, being the chair of history and I was, there's more philosophy and, and religious stuff uh, for the last several years and uh, realized that I needed to bring the Jesus part back in because of the things that we're facing. Um, if you look out at the very, very uh, landscape of America in terms of people and life and culture, um, one of the options is to just take maybe um, an Eastern approach for tranquility, where there is, to, to the point of the autonomous zone or anarchy, um, uh, you, you have this idea that um, 
that if you want to stay sane in these mad times, you can kind of retreat, get your space, find that sabbatical for yourself. And we think something like the Tao Te Ching is very helpful to find your place in nature, to connect with your own body and, and, and emotions. But what about people who need, uh, who, are, who are in need of more advocacy and justice? That's where the Jesus part comes in. And I think that was the thing that I noticed in these travels, that all of these attempts to have like a little enclave of Jesus, always, it kind of backfired. Um, there was one, one case, I was in a little hippie town on the same trip called Crestum. We met a young woman, we asked her how she liked living in Crestone, and she said, I hate it because there are five religions here and they're all judging me. Mm -hmm. So the, the Buddhists are mad at her for eating a burger. Um, there's the ranchers that are mad at her for not supporting Trump. There's the Christians who are trying to convert her. Everybody's kind of on, you know, everybody's on her case. But what she really needed in a certain sense was Jesus. And if I can and to say it in this way, that uh, Jesus wasn't, uh, to get technical on it, he wasn't an Essene. An Essene. And in the first century, you've, you've got all these various schools and sects within first century Judaism. Uh, and you've got a group that has some similarity to Jesus. They talk about like the dark and the light and good and evil, but they're all kind of separated out. And Jesus gets, uh, Jesus gets criticized for having disciples that are not fasting, they're, they're out partying with the, with the sinners. And the way we, we think of the sinners is usually off. The sinners were actually people that even progressives today might rightly call sinners. They were like the pimps and the drug dealers and the check cashing you know, place owners. They had diverged from the justice of ancient Israel. They had, they had strayed from Torah, not because they were lustful or they cussed or, you know, they went dancing or something. They were sinful because they were off in terms of economic justice. And Jesus is trying to bring them in. I, you said it at the beginning, I'm too loquacious. Uh, but let me, I'll say, I think the insight was, um, in our, in our times, our very divided times, one of the things I'm seeing on, I would actually say the left more than anything, uh, and, and I, something that I hope can be maybe uh, addressed with Jesus is um, attention to, or lack of attention to, potential allies that aren't perfect, which is, there's a, there was like a scene where Jesus, Jesus is, is asked by his disciples, hey, what are these people, there's this guy over there, and he's casting out demons in your name, and we don't know him, and we want him to stop, right? Now, there's always, there's always really tone-deaf, you know, celebrities that'll come out and say, you know, here, I'm, you know, going to advocate uh, for Black Lives Matter or, or the Me Too movement or something. Um, I'm not, not really talking about that, but kind of talking about the way in which Jesus's parables of the prodigal son, the, the, um, the, the lost coin, and the lost sheep uh, are arguably about bringing the family back together and, and like the healing of taking whole and to say, as soon as somebody repents, they're now part of the team. Now they don't get to speak. The, the big problem is you'll, you'll get people like, you know, evangelical celebrities that, that switch, maybe start to wake up and say, I'm more concerned about in uh, inequalities or something. And then they wanna still have the microphone. Like they, they wanna be the main player because they've lived their whole life as the youth pastor or the mega church pastor. So now they get to talk instead of, you know, 
sitting uh, sitting on the side. Um, but I think what, what Jesus does is, or what Jesus te teaches and taught is really the only solution to our problems, which is if you stay in the realm of um, the kind of the bean counting, then you make it so that people kind of have to double down on injustice and evil. That's not the way it should be. It's not like that's a, it's not like the people who have been hate-filled bigots for a while, like deserve it, but like Christ, you know, Christianity has always been about um, unconditional love for folks who don't deserve it. Um, but whether it's like the Middle East, if you're, if you're somebody who has uh, had a Palestinian rocket kill your grandma, you might have a certain lifelong sense of vengeance that you want. And the person who shot that rocket might have had their father killed by an action from the Israelis. So I'm not saying everybody needs to convert to an evangelical's version of what Jesus looks like. I'm saying that the kind of spirituality of this, of, of travel that is going to do anything good in the world today cannot stop at just retreating under a tree and meditating. That's a thing that when I'm saying with the Tao Te Ching, that's something we can do to kind of get centered and grounded. Then we've got to go out into um, the hustle and bustle of the marketplace, the fair and whatever. And that is where it gets both dangerous uh, in terms of your own personal uh, safety sometimes, or, or people will want to be opposing you. But at the same time, it's also a place where new friends can be made, um, transformed relationships can happen. And especially when you're traveling, it's a lot easier to do that because you're not the next door neighbor. People will sometimes, you know, my wife and I would be sitting at a, a bar or something and somebody would start out kind of angry if they heard us saying something. And then by that human um, contact and conversation and, um, and genuine um, sharing of values, I think um, that, was, that was one of the things that was hopeful for us. Uh, people that, that, that would start out almost with yelling voices um, sometimes became our friends. Well, you know, and I, on my paddle pilgrimages, um, I, I refer to people along the river or the fjord or whatever area I'm paddling as river angels. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, you know, you, you're all, I'm always surprised at who becomes these angels, the people who, who take care of you, who feed you, who help you out. And, and very often they're not people that I would normally associate with or even like. But, um, you know, when, when one looks at the, the word angelos, the Greek meaning is messenger, right? That's and it. so, so I, I think about the spiritual life, um, a life of um, transformation and, and growth, that, that that growth can come from very surprising places and that God or the spirit can use um, and often uses the least likely. Uh, it's just a question of, are we open to it? Are we willing to listen? Are we willing to, to be a part of that? That, that it's a very different way of looking at things, but my journeys have taught me that um, a redneck uh, in uh, Arkansas who transported me in his pickup truck from the river to a town and used the N-word repeatedly uh, became a force for good. And uh, again, that happens over and over, at least in my experience, 
but we have to be aware. We have to pay attention. We have to be open. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think there is, that's exactly what I was talking about with Jesus talking about the lost sheep. I think it's especially because, you know, you're up near Seattle, I'm, I'm near LA. There's this kind of um, woke culture that is surface level and it is kind of an accoutrement of one's um, celebrity persona, right? Um, and then you have people that, that look and dress very differently. Let's say I, I was in Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, staying at um, a cool, uh, our, we, we parked our camper behind uh, the Casey Jones Distillery. They had operated as moonshiners their whole, you know, three generations back. They got legal a couple years ago and just delightful people. And, you know, um, I think if they rolled up into some of our groovy, you know, and now they're all kind of closed off, but if they rolled up into a groovy place in LA or San Francisco or San Diego, um, the, the woke folks might say, you know, here's, here's some bigot redneck, as you say, and they were not that. And they were doing really cool things in their community um, with their own narrative and their own, you know, kind of cultural expression of what they were doing. That was far more profound and transformative. They weren't using the N-word, they were groovy people, but they were doing it in a place where they were fighting the good fight slowly but surely through relationships and not just through tweets. Um, but the reason that that was successful for them is because they had actual relationships already established with their neighbors. They, they were known and they kind of used in their case, you know, their, their family heritage of opposing um, tyranny related to, to booze in Dry County, you know, Kentucky as a way to say that, you know, it is, it is also patriotic to question injustice. And, that was far more profound than, um, like I said, than a celebrity just getting up on, on TV. They're not gonna listen to it. They're probably not watching the same <laughs> news network that it would show it. So, um, so that, that kind of thing is helpful, but, but it's the actual travel. And um, in the midst of that, one of the things we found, we stayed on a farm in, um, uh, in, in uh, the kind of the border of Florida and Georgia, and they had, they had, uh, been experiencing a decline of their mayhaw berries. It makes this, this is really cool berry, but the, but the climate change that all their neighbors were denying was making it so that they, they're losing their mayhaw crop. And well, everybody, grandma loves the mayhaw jam. Well, now we've got a ecological crisis. Now we've got a climate crisis because the mayhaw jams go, you know, well that, that's how people live, right? I mean, when it becomes real and it, and it, and there's a face to it. And it was at that time though. And I, uh, I, I wrote a little poem about it cause this family had uh, also goats. And so they had this, um, this kind of uh, pack of great Pyrenees dogs. And I was feeling so sad and lonely. I, I felt like the only way to exist in this world. And I was partly thinking about my own career and like what I, you know, cause after I left Trinity, Basically, I was kind of trying to semi-retire because I didn't want to do administration anymore. I had, I'd been on, I did this uh, interview for a president gig and I realized I can't be a president of a large college. They're going to see, the, I'm, the, I'm the crazy, I can't be responsible for representing a college, you know. And I wanted to kind of slowly back out into just kind of writing and, and meditating and so forth. But I'm trying to figure out, you know, how can I afford to do this, you know. But the bigger issue wasn't the afford it. It's this idea that it's almost like, 
a, a level removed from prison. Like in prison, you go to prison, you don't want to be a racist. You don't want to be part of, you don't want to be segregated out. But everybody has to find, or if they feel like they have to find in prison, people that are going to protect them. Who's going who's gonna to be on their side? And when we decided, you know, as we were traveling, it was the scariest feeling I had felt because I had kind of left saying, I am not going to be pimped, if that makes sense. And I realized it's very, it's like easier said than done. Um, and that the, it's not just the money, it's the safety. When we live in a world that's scary, we then look to a cartel guy that's going to keep things going. I mean, this is our friends down in Baja, California said, you know, yeah, the cartels are dangerous, but they're also sometimes the people that are delivering the medical supplies because they've got the structure, you know? So the reason people aren't evil people that join gangs, they're scared people that join gangs. And I realized I was scared and I felt lonely until, as you were saying, the, the angels, I like how you're calling them the angels. When you're traveling and then you bump, bump up against other travelers, like if we had met somewhere like along the river I'm parking, I'm like, oh, even if we had never known each other, you sit down by the fire and you have instant friendship. I mean, this is what, this is what the Buddhists call the Sangha, what the Christians call the ecclesia, the church, what the, the Muslims call the ummah. It's that idea of the spiritual community that is not really about who lives near you. Um, or as Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Who, who's my family? And the family are those fellow pilgrims that are struggling through, um, trying to figure out how to, how to survive in a world that is just marinating in injustice without getting your hands dirty or, or without getting infected. And you can't. I mean, I think Bonhoeffer talked about this as the um, implicated resistance. It's possible that we have to be marching against uh, sweatshop labor in shoes made by sweatshop labor because we're too poor to buy nice shoes, right? I mean, that's, and that's, that's a, a morally painful thing. But when you, when you think about what the early church did, the early church was um, supporting each other. One of the reasons they would donate to, to the churches in various places is because you might have economic problems. You might get booted from access to industries or guilds within a city because you're not bowing down before uh, Caesar. And we've lost that, <laughs> you know, we've lost that in many ways in, a, in Western religion, at least for, for many, for some. And so that support was really helpful as I, as I met people that were those fellow travelers. We finally came back from our journey feeling like we had lost, because we had we'd recently lost some friends um, within Orange County uh, Christianity because of political things. And um, I, think, I think that was, you know, I don't mind people not liking me but it's it's lonely being lonely you know well that that metaphor of the journey of the pilgrimage your road trip uh you know the early church was were the people of the way they were on a journey you have been on a variety of journeys all of us are on journeys um and and one of the things i've learned is to travel as light as possible um, yeah. As you've as you've traveled, um, I'm sure you've come to be able to sort out what you need and what you don't need. And when you return from your recent road trip sabbatical, you know what what are those essentials for the journey mm. 
um, that have in your years become clearer? Mm. It's such a, that's, that is the, one of the best questions and one of the, the best reasons to try a long-term kind of travels with Charlie experience or a, a paddling or whatever. Um, let me skip to the end of this. Uh, when I came back, all of a sudden we had the COVID. We, I maybe, you know, talked a month and a half, then all of a sudden COVID hits. And I felt bad because I wasn't scared. I'm scared. I'm scared for people. I'm scared for health. I mean, I wasn't scared about the economic fallout um, uh, in the sense that a lot of my call, like, there were rifts, right? So people got laid off. Um, students were sent home. Staff members who, um, like, you know, are, are in student life um, might have been furloughed. So a lot of there's a lot of fear. Like, what are we going to do if the economic system collapses? I didn't have that fear because I realized I already had too much. My job for the next six months is just to be scaling down the junk that I got in the garage. So that's kind of like where it goes. It is so liberating. The whole universe became my playground. The whole world became um, the gift. And once you kind of let your brain break through that, the, the square footage of your house is irrelevant. And sometimes it's a, a burden. Let's say one more thing. I met this guy named Jesus and his wife was Pebbles. They, were, they, were, they announced themselves as uh, hippie royalty. <laughs> and I, um, I told him I want to live on the road permanently like he did. And he said, you're probably too scared. And I, I said, why is that? He says, because it, you know, the safety of that permanence and being part of the system is, um, you know, is, 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 is important psychologically for people. And I told him that I had purchased three uh, acres of land. I was kind of inspired by your, your turning me on to Wendell Berry and just kind of the spirituality of, of uh, farming and, 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 and growing your own food and not being dependent on uh, factory farms. But he asked me, like, why do you need that? And he said, maybe you need that because you are, um, like you feel like that's the thing that's gonna endorse you as a man. Because if you live in an RV, then you must be a bum. But now you've got a little ranch, so now you're not a bum, right? And I realized that, um, and he told me that, and I said, no, 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 I need to have this farm. Well, even though I love the little farm, uh, it is no end of, of stress and burden. Right. And so uh, this is straight out of the Tao Te Ching. It's straight out of Jesus. Um, you need very, very little. I mean, so I, I'm, I'm going on too long. With you. I'm saying, you, you, I don't have a list of things you need. You, everyone kind of figures out, you're like, what are these little things that, that bring me joy? And, you know, what do I need? Um, but one of the things I'll, I'll give you just a couple technical things that I think are helpful. Like one is um, we, we found how, how amazing composting toilets work. You can get a composting toilet for like 900 bucks online. You just crank it and it turns your poop <laughs> into fertilizer. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. So instead of having these chemicals that are treating the poop, I'm actually helping grow things. Um, and it doesn't smell as bad as the, if you have a, if you've ever been in an RV or a boat, we were living on a boat for a while. Those tanks can get to be a real drag, the smell. So that's one thing. If you can, if you can put a, uh, if you can get a, a composting toilet, that's fantastic. Um, I really also love um, those uh, carabiner um, lines. So to organize things, you know, I like, I like having all that stuff up in, like right above the, the kitchen sink and you just know where everything is because when you're in a tight space, um, you can do that. But um, the other thing is if you, get a, if you get a dry bag, certainly, you know, you got those laying around. But as you're traveling around, if you, put a, if you get a dry bag, 
you don't even need to go to a laundromat. You put some good organic soap in that thing. And as you're driving, you string it across with a bungee cord and it's just agitating that thing. Then you pull it out, rinse it off, hang it in the, in the sun. I mean, you know, I love my GPS on the phone. It's, I mean, everything's easy. I'd say that the, the, it's the technology that was most helpful. There's a thing called Boondockers Welcome. Um, it's an app that you can sign up for. And there will be like-minded people that just will let you stay at their house for free. And all they want in exchange is good stories after, you know, for an hour or so over a, a cocktail. So I think that was, my, that was the biggest one. And it was those people who allowed me to go into parts of town and then get to know like what cool stuff's going on. So I'd go to a town where I think this place is Squaresville. And then I would stay with some really cool people and they would take me to where the, where the conversations were, you know, where, you know, where it was like they're an open mic night with poetry and so forth. And so, um, and that, and then there's another thing called Harvest Hosts, which is a little more bourgeois, but pretty nice. You can stay at breweries and, and vineyards and, and uh, so forth and museums in their parking lot with your RV for free. Mm. And all, you know, you just maybe go in and buy a, buy a bottle of wine or something. And so in a certain sense, you, you, you need very little. And if the whole world could just take that, uh, take that kind of journey, do any kind of journey, it could be a walking across the, you know, the mountains, those journeys just purify the mind of all of these things that when you come back home, are things that you're saying, I don't want to haul that. I don't know where to, you know, I don't want to store that. And it's not like you can't, if you love things, enjoy, hoard it away. But it is liberating, you know, to just, to just basically have a few really quality pairs of clothes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I would say that uh, a good harmonium or a, uh, or a little uh, backpacker's guitar is, is pretty helpful. <laughs> or whatever your instrument is to just kind of be able to make your own beautiful music uh, when you're by yourself. A final question for you. I know you and, and your wife have raised two young boys becoming men. What, what would you hope? I know they are moving on and it, the nest is soon empty. Um, what, what is it you hope you have passed along as they, in a sense, launch into their journey? Well, one thing that they told me that I didn't pass on well enough was a... Um, uh, was the tranquility that I had internally related to all the crises of the world, right? So I think um, it's important for anybody who's a parent to uh, recognize things that are troubling, but also to not give up on, not give up on hope um, because, you know, kids pick up on that. And so that was something I'm repenting of. And they're leaving in, you know, in one week that we're out of here and moving on. Um, but I think what I think we will be passed on was they are doing, they're both doing exactly what they love and what they want to do. And they did not take salary into uh, much consideration. Um, my youngest is, is getting more into graphic design and things, but they were able to move out. Uh, and the, 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 the minimalism or, or needing less, um, has allowed them to actually, I would argue, be doing better than their, their peers in some ways because they're not getting overly indebted and they are actually in an area that has a really great, you know, conversation in, 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 in the arts, uh, so forth. Had they, you know, had they bought into what I bought into early, 
uh, which, was, which was everybody telling me to stretch as far as I could to maximize, you know, how, how much debt I could get to get a house because houses are always going up and just burdening. Um, I passed that on and they are, they're content and they're happy. And I can't imagine starting out at 18 or 25 in the 80s or the 90s uh, feeling okay to be in a studio apartment. They're feeling great because they're, they're spending their money on things they care about. So. Jeff, you're also uh, a podcaster. And uh, let me say a little bit as we close about your um, podcast, Protect Your Noggin. But, uh, the second season that we're ending next week is uh, the Protect Your Noggin with Jesus, where we're going through a 12. We have 12 chapters of a book that's uh, finishing up now on um, different sayings of Jesus that help you to evade or outfox religious wolves that come in the name of Jesus. And then next season, which we're starting in August, we'll be, um, we'll be doing Protect Your Noggin with Lao Tzu with using the Tao Te Ching. And so every, every season, we're going, to, we're going to be picking another person, maybe Rumi, um, definitely Julian of Norwich, um, uh, maybe William of Ockham. But we're just going to be looking at uh, wisdom from the past to shed light on ways that we can kind of emancipate ourselves from mental slavery, as Bob Marley said. Sounds like uh, an adventure for folks to join you on. Protect your noggin, your podcast. Jeff, it has been delightful to uh, have this conversation. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, thank you for <laughs> the, the courageous journey, the adventure you've been on, and the wisdom that you have gleaned on that journey. I look forward to, um, to reconnecting with you, hopefully before long, down in the sunny climbs of Southern California, and um, perhaps we can go for a paddle together. That would be groovy. There's some good spots. Not as good as the sound, but uh, pretty exciting. We'll Sounds do it. Good. Thanks All right, take care, my man. Appreciate Peace. it very much. My pleasure. Until next time, I'm Dave Ellingson, and this has been Say What? A Fresh Look at Old Sayings, the podcast which explores the origins meaning and value of old sayings, familiar expressions, and adages. Tune in to Say What on your mobile device, computer, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And join me next time for a lively conversation about the unique life journeys of two dreamers, Judith Ortiz and Misael Salmaron, who came to America as children of undocumented workers and now as successful and contributing young professionals hope to become citizens. For more information on my books and films, check out my website, dellingson.com. And thanks for listening.